People have a slightly gauzy fantasy of what the good death is. You're at home, your children and your grandchildren are all around you. You're comfortable, but you're conscious. You say thank you and you say I love you and people say I'm sorry for whatever pain I caused you. And that does happen sometimes, but very often dying people are not conscious. Very often they have dementia. They may have pain and agitation that have to be treated. And so a death can go either way. And and not everybody can have a death at home and not everybody can have that kind of, you know, Walton's family farewell. This is Paula Spann. She's a Columbia journalism professor and author of the New York Times New Old Age column, discussing how her own mother's terminal cancer diagnosis led her to a service called hospice. I had vaguely heard about this thing called hospice I didn't know if there was one down in South Jersey where she lived, it's a rural area. I called the hospice in my county and said, is is there a hospice in South Jersey? And they said yes and gave me the name and I called. Hi, I'm Brian Hayden and this is Redesigning the End, a podcast about the realities, choices, and considerations we all face at the end of life. Whether we're dealing with our own aging or the care of a loved one, by learning from experts and questioning our medical and cultural systems, we hope we can improve the way we deal with death. Today, we're focusing on hospice, both what it is and how it can improve the quality of your final days. Again, here's Paula Spann. Jane came to my parents' apartment and she sat at the dining room table with me and my dad and my mom. And she told us about hospice and how it worked because we didn't know much about it. So she told us about the nurses that would come and the home care aides that would come and the social worker if we needed it and about bereavement services. She asked if she had any questions or fears or concerns. But then she asked my mom, well, what do you like to do? My parents were bird watchers. And my mom said, well, she liked to watch the birds. And they had bird feeders all over this little balcony outside their dining room. And they liked to drive down to the Jersey Shore and take a walk along the boardwalks, even off season. It was getting hard for my mom. She would have to sit on a bench and then walk three benches down and sit on the next bench. But she could see the ocean and it was meaningful for her. When Jane signed us up, she said to my mother, well, we'll take care of a lot of this stuff. We'll we'll get the equipment you need. We'll get the drugs you need. We'll send people here to help you with the laundry and help keep the apartment so that you can spend more time watching the birds and you could drive down to the shore. She had been listening. She said, you don't have to be the coordinator for the insurance policies. You don't have to be the social worker. You don't have to be going to the pharmacist. We'll do that. You just be the daughter. You just be the husband. And when she left, we were all just so relieved. We just looked at each other and said, okay, nothing is going to make this easy, but we don't have to go through this by ourselves. There's someone out there who's experienced, who knows what this is like, who's gonna be with us and help us. We were in good hands. Hospice is a service, not a place. So it's not somewhere you go. They come to you. When you enroll in hospice, and it's for people of any age, including children, when you have a terminal diagnosis, Hospice will come to you, to your home or the place that you call home, and it will send nurses and it will send a social worker and uh, home care aides 
to help with household chores. Hospice workers are committed to trying to make people comfortable and at peace at the end of life. They are very skilled in managing symptoms, pain, agitation. They do not provide 24-hour care. This confuses people sometimes. So you still need either a family to care for this person who's dying, or you need to hire home care aides, uh, or hospice will come to a patient who's in assisted living or a nursing home and take care of them there. Whatever place you call home, that's where hospice will come. Uh, the fact is that hospice patients often do live longer research studies show, than people who aren't on hospice because they're getting better care and more attention. But it is not aimed at helping you live longer. It is aimed at recognizing that the end of your life has come and that there are people to try to make it peaceful, people to try to make it comfortable, and people to support the family who is likely doing most of the work. Now, my mom, who was 80 at the time, was uneasy because she, she was feeling okay. She wasn't in pain. She was tired, but she didn't have symptoms aside from that. It was odd for her to have people coming to her and helping out in the house and checking on her and she said, I don't need this yet. But the hospice said, we like to get to know our patients before they need us. And so she was a hospice patient in South Jersey for three months. And I was so grateful that we had them with us through that period. It would have been so different if we had waited and waited and called hospice when she was two weeks from death. We wouldn't have known these people. She wouldn't have known these people. They are taking care not only of an individual, but of a, a family or a family-like constellation. That is really important. The unit of care in hospice is the patient and the family that is caring for the patient. And there is no other part of the medical system except obstetrics, where the unit of care is the mother and the baby. Every other part of medicine is just the patient, as if the patient existed in a vacuum. But hospice recognizes that in most cases, it's family members that are providing the care. And so when you see your hospice nurse or the hospice physician, very often that person will ask the patient how she's feeling, what problems she might be having. And then that person will turn to you, the son or daughter or spouse, and say, how are you doing? Are you getting enough support? Are you getting enough sleep? And it's hugely important. So to have hospice understand that they are taking care not only of an individual, but of a family, that is really important. The hospice workers trained us to be her caregivers, showed my dad and me how to turn her so that she wouldn't develop bed sores. The hospice nurse showed me how to crush a Tylenol with the back of a spoon because she couldn't swallow a pill, but they showed me how to get some Tylenol into her to bring her fever down so that she didn't convulse. And we could call them at any time. So at one point, my mother fell and apparently was having a stroke and couldn't get up. And my dad called me in a panic and said, what shall I do? Shall I call 911? And I knew to say, no, don't do that. They'll put her in an ambulance. They'll take her to the hospital. They'll do all those things that she already told us she didn't want. No, call hospice. You can call hospice 24 hours a day. So he did. And they came, 
and helped her back into bed and said, yes, she probably had had a stroke. But to, to know who to call at two in the morning instead of 911, which will set up this whole conveyor belt of medical interventions, that's what EMTs will do. That's what they're trained to do. That's what they're legally obliged to do. And so having someone else to call that will come help you out, get her comfortable again, tell your family what's going on, that's a huge comfort. Physicians are trained to keep trying to preserve life. That's their training. And it's a difficult turn for them to say, we're not able to save you now. In one case with my mother, after my mom and dad had hung up and I was still on the phone with the, with the doctor, I said to her, I think we're going to stop treatment. No one's even giving us any good options. I think we're going to call hospice now. And she said, yes, that would be a good idea. I wish more of my patients would do that. And I had to choke back a response that said, well, maybe more of your patients would do that if you told them about it. But I don't want to rant about doctors. I know there's a fair amount of irrationality on both sides of this equation. You know, doctors are willing to keep trying things forever, and families are willing to ask them or push them to try things forever when sometimes people need to step back and say, this person is 80, this person is 85, this person is 90, this person has diabetes and heart disease and cancer. This person is not going to return to the person that we all remember from 20 years ago. How can we help her now? You have a choice of hospices. Most areas have several uh, and cities have lots. And so you get to choose which hospice, and I would start with the nonprofit first. I'm aware, as a reporter, I'm aware of the way that hospice has changed since its early days. This was a very grassroots nonprofit movement run by volunteers almost exclusively. But once Medicare paid for the benefit, it's become increasingly for-profit, and more hospices now are for-profit and it's also dominated by chains. And that does not seem to be especially a great development. All Medicare payments are the same. So if you're gonna make a profit on hospice, how are you going to do that? Well, you provide less service. You send the nurses less often. If someone isn't declining, you're more apt to disenroll them and say, well, you can come back on when you begin declining again. Uh, and you have higher margins, of course. So we do need to use and support our nonprofit hospices. but they're different in different areas. So in your city or county, maybe there's a really good for-profit hospice. And maybe the nonprofit is not as good because it's more shaky financially. But ask people that you know, ask your doctors, ask nurses. Nurses always know everything. And ask what's the good local hospice. It's hard for people to make this turn. We're just trying to stave off death. But of course we can't. Immortality is not one of the choices that we have. And so the question just becomes, how do those last few weeks and months play out? All of these experiences for me were difficult. And it was hard to see my mother die even though she was 80 and had a full life because she was my mother and because then my father would be alone. So I don't want to be chirpy about this. Nothing makes dying easy, but there are people who have the expertise to make it easier and to help you through it. So all in all, 
I'm a believer in hospice and I wish people would not wait so long to call them. This is a continuing problem, calling hospice at the 11th hour, calling them the day before or two days before somebody is dying. It's an understandable reflex. We don't want to admit that this person is not going to get better. We don't want to confront the fact that this person is actually dying. We're going to wait. We're not ready for hospice yet. We're not there yet. Yes, you are. If you have the terminal diagnosis, you are there. And why would you deprive yourself and your loved one of this care for days and weeks and months? Why struggle through this alone when there are people there that can help you? When you get the terminal diagnosis, call. That's the time. And let them assist you in getting ready for this challenge. And let them help you through it. And end of soapbox. We want to say a big thank you to Paula Spann. Her book, When the Time Comes, is an incredible resource. You can learn more at paulaspan.com or find a link in the show notes at redesigntheend.com. This episode was produced by Pat Couples. Not only did he do the reporting and the editing, he also provided original music. Additional music is from the band Hotels and Highways. The fact that you're listening means you also see the opportunity to redesign this intersection of elder care, senior housing, estate planning, and death care. And if you're listening, it also means you're still alive. I hope you enjoy it.